uh, want to tell you that there were a number of good questions put in the box this time. Uh, I didn't have to make any of these questions up, which is good. Sometimes I have to do that. Sometimes I have to come up with my own questions and then answer them, but not tonight. So I'm thankful for it. In fact, there were so many that I left a few of them off until next time because I wasn't sure that we'd be able to deal with them all. All right, so that being said, let's begin. And um, let's begin in the New Testament. Uh, One person asked um, to explain a couple of different sections of Scripture, and the first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 10. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll work through this section together. Of course, like any other passage of Scripture, if we are seeking to understand what it means, especially if it's maybe a little bit more difficult, then we need to be mindful of the context in which it's found, right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we need, to, we need to back up at least to chapter 12. And really you can take 12, 13, and 14 all together as one unit. Chapter 12, you remember that Paul deals with spiritual gifts. This is the chapter where he talks about all of the different spiritual gifts. And he talks about how each one of these spiritual gifts and each member of the body, that it all works together for the same purpose. Each member of the body has an important role to play. There's not any member that is any more or less important than another. And of course, the reason why, the reason for this is because evidently there was some arguing going on within the church at Corinth about who was better than maybe somebody else. My spiritual gift is better than yours. And so I'm more valuable to the church than you are, that sort of a thing. And so in chapter 12, he outlines the different spiritual gifts and their purpose and talks about how this all works together for the the unifying of the body. But I want you to zoom in at the very last verse of chapter 12. Paul says this statement. He says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, this last statement of the chapter, and yet I show you a more excellent way, in the original language, the idea is I'm going to show you a way that stands above and beyond all of the others. That's what he means when he says it's a more excellent way. Well, a more excellent way in in contrast to what? Well, this way of all the spiritual gifts that's been described in chapter 12, the miraculous. So then what's the more excellent way? Well, that's what brings us to chapter 13, which, of course, is the chapter that we know deals uh, with love. And so in the first three verses, he'll make some general points about love. Without it, what I say means nothing. What I have means nothing. And um, what I give or what I do means nothing, verse 1, 2, and 3. And then you have some positive and some negative characteristics of love in in, uh, verse 4, Uh, all the way down through verse number 7, what it doesn't do, what it's not, and what it does, and what it is. And then we get to verse 8. He says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Stop for just a moment. And as we're studying through this chapter... 
We've read about love in the first seven verses, and then we get to verse 8, and we all of a sudden start reading about prophecies and tongues and miraculous knowledge. Where did that come from? The answer is that it came from chapter 12. It came from chapter 12, where Paul discusses the miraculous, and he discusses the spiritual gifts, and so now he comes back to it. He said, I'm I'm going to tell you about a way that is more excellent, that stands above this one, and then he talks about that way, which is love, and then he says, listen, those things we were talking about in chapter 12, they're going to go away. They're not going to be here forever, and that's why I'm telling you to desire, or why I'm showing you, verse 31, a way that is better. Love never fails, but these miraculous gifts, these spiritual gifts, they're going to fail. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. Let's continue reading. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child, but then I became a man, I put away childish things, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know... Uh, Then I shall know, just as I am also known, and now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So the question is about specifically verse number 10. And in that verse, Paul talks about something that is in part, that which is in part, and then that which is perfect. And he says, when that which is perfect comes, then that which is in part will be done away. And so the question is, well, what does that mean? And a lot of folks have talked about the fact that that's talking about the second coming of the Lord. But that doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. Let me just, let me just uh, share with you one or two. It's important that we take the Bible for what it says as a whole. And so I would encourage you, as you're studying through 1 Corinthians 13, leave the context just for a moment. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is an excellent commentary on what's happening here especially the first half of the chapter, all the way through verse number 16, Paul talks about unity, you remember, in Ephesians chapter 4, the first uh, three or four verses. But then in verse 7, he starts talking about spiritual gifts, just like he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, uh, he says here's the reason why. I want you to skip down with me to verse, uh, verse number 12. Here's why these things were given. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to uh, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be tossed about as children, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, and we'll stop there. How would you summarize Ephesians 4? What's going on? Well, he's talking about the fact that in the first century, the church is in its infancy, and without the completed revelation of the word of God, then the church, what's going to strengthen the church? What's going to provide doctrinal stability? It's the word of God. But the word of God hasn't been given in its fullness. It's not complete. So how can the church in the first century, how can they have doctrinal stability? That's where the miraculous gifts come into play. Now that takes us back to 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking about that which is perfect. And when he talks about that which is perfect, I think it's important to note that in the um, Greek New Testament, there's no uh, hint of any masculine noun here. And so for that and a number of other reasons, we're not talking about Jesus, 
But when we look at the context, the context talks about knowing in part and then, and then knowing completely. He talks about seeing in a mirror, but then seeing face to face. He talks about immaturity, and then he talks about maturity. He's talking about the completed revelation of the Word of God. So 1 Corinthians 13.10 tells me that when God's Word reached its completion, that there was no longer any need for the miraculous, for spiritual gifts, and so all of those things, those things are done away. Makes sense, doesn't it, why Paul would say stop arguing about them and desire something better, chapter 12, because he knew that they weren't going to be around very long at all. All right, here's the second passage. Uh, back to the, going to the Old Testament now, Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs chapter 26, and the question is about verse 4 and 5, but let's add verse 3 to it. Proverbs 26, verse 3, 4, and 5. You'll be familiar with this. It says, A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So again, the question is fairly obvious, right? Uh, The Proverbs writer says in verse number four, don't answer him according to his folly. And then verse five, he says, do. So what gives? Is this a contradiction? And the answer is no. We have to remember that this is wisdom literature. And so what what has to be done with wisdom literature is that it has to be considered in the context of whatever situation might be presented. So in verse number three, we're talking in verse three, four, and five, we're talking about how to address somebody that's foolish. And in verse number three, these pictures of the whip and the bridle and the rod, what that's telling us is there are some folks who are so foolish that there are no amount of words that are going to be able to change their minds or reason with them. But then in verse four and five, he says, look, here are two kinds of situations in which you find yourself. And I tried to, I tried uh, today uh, to try and think up of an illustration for this, maybe a, a scene from a movie or something, but I couldn't think of anything to illustrate it, so you'll just have to use your imagination. But what's happening here is Solomon is saying there are some times when there is someone who is so foolish that it won't do any good for you to answer them at all. Just turn around and walk away. You're wasting your breath. But then there are other times when the appropriate thing to do with the person who is so foolish is to take their foolishness and then turn that around and sort of use it against them in order to try and help them see the folly of their ways. So sometimes it's good. Answer them, right? Sometimes there's uh, room to be made, progress to be made. Other times you're wasting your time. So leave it alone. And that's the difference between the two as best as I can see it. Now, here are a couple of questions that were actually submitted by some of our, uh, some of our uh, young people. This is an interesting question. I've never thought of it before. The question is, did Jesus heal the colorblind? And the answer is no, not that I'm aware of. Of course, he could have had he chosen. There is one example or one miracle, though, that did come to my mind that's sort of interesting. It's found in Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 26. This is the occasion in which Jesus comes to Bethsaida, Mark 8, verse 22 to 26. And there's a blind man that's brought to him, and the blind man um, uh, begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands on him, and he asked if he saw anything. 
And he looked up and said, I saw men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was uh, restored. And everyone saw clear and saw everyone clearly. And then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in town. This is a remarkable miracle. It's a remarkable account. And um, there is a, um, a Bible scholar who has written a very good chapter on this by the name of Stephen Lloyd. And his chapter is found in one of the uh, Shenandoah lectureship books. And so I would encourage you to go check that out. Um, he has a lot of good things to say about this. But basically the idea, as far as I can tell, is when at the first occasion when he says... I see men like trees walking. It's sort of the idea that he has visual sight, but he's not comprehending what he's seeing visually. And so the second, uh, what follows then, he puts his hands up on his, uh, on his eyes again and makes him to look up, and then his, his eyesight was restored. Now he has the visual sight, and he also has the ability to comprehend what he's seeing visually. So the answer then is, well, why did, it, why did Jesus do that in two parts? And the answer, I don't know. I have no idea why Jesus did that in two parts. I'm sure that he did it for a reason, but I don't know what the reason is. But I'm not joking. I would encourage you to go find uh, the chapter that Steve wrote. I can't remember the year, but um, I know we have those books, and if you'll just go flip through the uh, uh, table of contents, you'll be able to find it. Um, but he did a good job writing about this, and so I, I would encourage you to go do it, go read it. Here's the second question. The question is, how come you can't bring anything with you when you die? And the answer is because the things in this world are just that. They're things, and they're physical, and they're, they can't be taken with us when we die. Uh, there are a couple of passages that say it. Luke 12, verse 20, it's the parable of the, of the rich fool. This is the guy, you remember, that had all of the things and he said, I need to build bigger barns to store all of my stuff. And Jesus said, you're a fool. This night your soul is going to be required of you. And then he asked this question, and then whose will these things be? What's the implication? You're leaving and they're staying here. So you can't take them with you. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 7, as Paul talks about uh, the love of uh, money or the love of material things. He says in verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and is certain that we can carry nothing out of it. So the things that are here in this world are just that. They're things that are here in this world. And the Bible says these are not things that um, we're going to take with us when we die. Now this next question sort of piggybacks on top of this one. The question is, Will the earth be restored on the day of judgment? Now that's a very good question. And I want to direct your minds to, sec or direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 3 to answer this question, at least to begin with. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be interested in verse 10 all the way through verse number 13. Now I think there's a very important point to note about this chapter and uh, before we look at verse 10 to 13, I want to point it out to you. I want you to notice with me uh, all the way back in verse number 3. And in verse number 3, you'll notice that Peter says, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, I would encourage you to underline verse number four, and I would suggest to you that this is the key to the chapter. And the reason is because in what follows, Peter is going to talk about the flood, and then he's going to talk about uh, the final conflagration at the end of all things. And uh, the suggestion sometime is made that what Peter is doing is that he is comparing uh, he is comparing what the Lord is going to do in the future with what the Lord did in the past with the flood. And um, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I would suggest to you that verse number four is the key. And what's going on here is that Peter is addressing those who say, you know, the Lord, he made the world and he's never really intervened in it. The Lord hasn't ever really acted in judgment. He's not really ever done anything before. So why should we think he'll do something again? And so then he says, oh, well, he has. Don't you remember the flood? He intervened with the flood and um, he's going to intervene again. He's going to do something again later. And that's what comes up in verse 10 and following. So I would suggest to you that it's not quite, it's not quite appropriate to uh, look at this and say, well, what Peter is doing is saying that what God's going to do in the future is going to be exactly like what he's done in the past. I don't think that's what he's doing, what he's saying. But what he is saying is, for those of you who said God's never had anything to do in this world, here's the flood, exhibit A, and here's what's coming later, exhibit B. Now, what's coming later? Look at verse 10 and following. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, um, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy, uh, in holy, holy, in holy conduct and godliness. I'll get it right in just a minute. Looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I want you to focus in with me on some of the language that Peter uses, especially in verse number 10 and in verse number 11. And I want you to notice that Peter describes the heavens passing away with a great noise. And in the Greek New Testament, Peter is using a word that literally means to come to an end, to no longer be there or to disappear. So he says they're going to pass away, which means they're going to come to an end, they're going to no longer be there, and they're going to disappear. And then he goes on and he says in verse number um, 11... He says, therefore, since all these things are going to be dissolved, look at the word dissolved. The word dissolve means to reduce by violence into its component parts, or it means to just destroy. So in these two verses, Peter has used words that have to do with destruction, that have to do with coming to an end, that have to do with disappearing and just not being there anymore. Now, there's something else that needs to be pointed out. Look at verse 11, or excuse me, the end of verse number 10. The last part of that verse says, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's the rendering of the New King James Version. Now, you may be using a different version, and you'll notice that in some versions, the translation is slightly different. It says something like, um, 
It says something like, uh, it will be found or uh, dissolved or something, something like that. And the reason for the difference in translation is that there's a textual variant here. And um, uh, one of the textual variants suggests that um, the translation should be uh, the phrase found. In other words, will the earth and the works that are in it be found? And so some have pointed to that and said, well, you see, that, mean, that, that uh, tells us that there's going to be a, a restoration or a, or a renovation or something like that. But that's not, that's not necessarily the case. And the reason that we know that, first of all, is because we've got to let the context answer and define for us what's going on here. And we've already seen some language in this context that has to do with destruction, with disappearing and with coming to an end. Second is a point that uh, is very important, and I believe it's Bruce Metzger that uh, makes this point, that if it is the case that uh, it should be translated be found or found, that the idea is not that it will be found in the sense of it's going to be there in restoration, but rather it's going to be found for destruction, like it'll be laid bare, laid open for judicial sentence. That's the idea. So what does Peter tell us that God is going to do at some point in the future? He says, well, when the day of the Lord comes, what's going to happen is that the heavens are going to pass away, that the elements are going to melt, that all of these things are going to be dissolved, and he uses words that have to do with disappearing, with destruction, with uh, reducing by violence, with um, no longer being there. So there's no way from 2 Peter chapter 3 that we can reach the conclusion that the earth is going to be restored in the day of judgment. But um, there's another passage that we need to consider too. We don't have the time to consider it all tonight, but I want to just make reference to it just for a moment. Look at Romans chapter 8 uh, quickly with me, if you will. And I want you to notice what's happening with me in Romans 8 beginning in verse 18. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul begins to talk about future glory. And he's talking about future glory in contrast with present suffering. He says, um, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, For we are saved in this hope, but um, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now again, we don't have the time tonight to work all the way through this, but just a couple of things quickly. First of all, notice that Paul talks about the creation and he talks about the creature And then when you get to um, verse number 12, excuse me, verse number uh, 23, he says uh, not only that, but we also. And so a lot of this hinges on who's the creation or the creature and who's the we also. And uh, many of our brethren have uh, have, uh, uh, 
come to the conclusion that the creation or the creature is the church, and the we also refers to the apostles. And so the idea is the church as a whole is suffering and struggling, and look, even us, even the apostles, even we're struggling and suffering with all of this. And uh, I think that there's some merit to that conclusion. But then, on the other hand, there are those that would suggest that, well, what Paul is doing is he is actually talking about the world, the creation that we see around us, the world in which we live. But notice a couple of things. If that's the case, if that's the case, and it certainly could be, but if that's the case, notice this. What Paul is doing is he is telling us, number one, he's telling us what but he never says anything about how. All he says in this context, matter-of-factly, is that the creation groans, that it's been subjected to futility, and that it, um, that it uh, waits for this uh, redemption, uh, or this deliverance, rather, from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. It's simply stating it matter-of-fact. It doesn't say how it's going to happen. It just says what. Might I suggest to you that the how would be found in 2 Peter chapter 3? But notice something else here, that if Paul is talking about the actual creation, that what he's doing is he's using it as an illustration. It's a metaphor. He's simply making the point as he personifies creation. Notice that he is personifying creation. He's using a word picture, and he's using it simply to illustrate the fact that sin is bad and has a terrible effect on everybody and everything. The effects of sin is is everywhere we look. And that's all that he's doing. And he's saying, look, we're waiting for for all of this to come to an end. We're suffering now under the negative effects of sin, and we're waiting for the time in which we're not going to be suffering any longer. Now, there's a lot more that needs to be said about this section, but I wanted to just point it out because this is the point I think that's important. Um, so uh, So many will turn to this section in effort to find uh, restoration on the day of judgment. But there's nothing in this context of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following that would force us into the conclusion of restoration on the day of judgment. First of all, there's a case that could be made that Paul is not actually talking about the creation at all. He's talking about the church and the apostles. But even if he is talking about the creation, he's personifying it and he's painting a word picture. He's using a metaphor. And we have to interpret this in light of 2 Peter chapter 3 and a number of other passages which are very clear about what they say. So all of that to say, the question, will the earth be restored on the day of judgment? The answer to that question is no. The earth is not going to be restored on the day of judgment. Uh, Peter says that the earth is going to be destroyed, that it's going to um, come to an end, that it's not going to be here anymore. And that's what's going to happen on the day of judgment. Well, I have one more question written down, but we're out of time. So we're going to stop here, and um, we will uh, make note of this last question, and we'll include that the next time we have our question and answer time together. But I do appreciate the questions that you submitted, and you giving me the opportunity to answer them. I really do enjoy doing this, and um, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if we did it more than just once every quarter. Uh, That's how much I enjoy doing it. So continue, please, to submit your questions. And um, some of them I might even use for sermons. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation 
now, and it may be that there's someone here who has a need to respond. And if that's the case, then um, we encourage you to do so. Maybe you need to become a Christian tonight, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We'd love to help you with that. Maybe tonight you're a Christian and there's some other need, some other thing that we can help you with. We encourage you to let that be known while we stand and sing together.